0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast. Making Theology Central. Are you tired yet? Are are you tired? Are are you saying, hey, 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 we have to stop. I I need to sit down. I need some rest. I mean, you're running too fast. Slow down. Look, look, you've got to get up. We've got to keep running. We've got to get to the end by the end of August. We've got to. Yes, we are in the summer of Jeremiah. We have been working on the book of Jeremiah all summer. I hope it's been beneficial. And now we're getting to the very end, and we are supposed to finish the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations. By the end of August, and we are right now, I won't say we're in a full-blown sprint, but we are definitely running and we are trying to get there. And hopefully you are going to really commit to the book of Jeremiah for, the, to, for at least the last part of August and get as much out of it as possible. Yes, I would love if you go back and listen to everything, but even if you don't, Hopefully, you'll get as much out of this as we can possibly provide you between now and the end of August. It's going to be Jeremiah, 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 but let's not talk about where we've been or even where we're going. We just need to accomplish something this evening. So welcome, everyone. It is Tuesday, August the 22nd, 2023. It is currently 11:13 p.m. Central Time and yes, I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. A little late night Do we call it a little late night jog? What? Since, since obviously I'm going to use this running, (laughs) this running, you know, allegory. I'm going to use this running marathon. I'm going to use it to death. Do we, do we, do we go outside and do a couple of stretches and start running around the neighborhood late at night for a, a late night jog? Is, does that sound, do you want to do that? Okay. All right. Maybe you don't want to. You just sit right there. I'll go run around the neighborhood and try to get us as far into the book of Jeremiah. As we can, all right. We, so here's what we're doing. It's, we've had a little, some twist and turn, some ups and downs, some good things, some bad things. We've had a mixture of things. And I felt like, oh, maybe, maybe we're losing it a little bit. We're getting close to the end. Some people may want to drop out. Some people may have kind of lost focus. So I'm like, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll go back to Jeremiah chapter 20. We'll utilize teaching from Dr. J. Vernon McGee, and we'll cover uh, Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah chapter 21, Jeremiah chapter 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29. Well, at least we'll do that. Well, who knows? But, but we're going to, at least this week, the goal is Jeremiah 20 to 29. If Are we going to use Dr. J. Vernon McGee for all of that? I don't know. But we're definitely going to uh, be focusing on those chapters moving forward and hopefully trying to get you to really think about it and put your thinking caps on. So we did pretty good. We We looked at Jeremiah chapter 20. We looked at Jeremiah chapter 21. And then we, we finished Jeremiah chapter 22, and technically what I'm supposed to be doing this evening, this late night episode, is I should be telling you to open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 23, and we should proceed, but once again... I keep making these mistakes. When we should be moving forward, I keep wanting to go backwards. I'm the person that you're like, what are you doing? We we have a finish line. We have a race to win. And I'm like, well, I think we need to go backwards. And you're like, no. And I'm like, "I, I just need to make sure everyone's on the same page. So before we do anything, in fact, I've backed the audio up a little bit. We're going to listen to some audio that we've already listened to, but before we do anything, I want you to take your Bibles. I want you to go to Jeremiah chapter 22, and I want you to start with me in verse 24. Jeremiah 22, 24. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. Now, I didn't, it didn't register to me immediately when we were talking about it in the last episode. It didn't really, I didn't just immediately go, wait a minute. We spent a lot of time talking about this before. In fact, I did an entire series on this. It didn't register to me. So I'm going to kind of point this out, and I'm going to point you to the series in question so that you can go listen to it, because there's no way we can work through it all again right now, okay? Because it was, it is a complicated mess to even try to figure out. And there's been papers written about it, articles, probably even books written about it, because it's definitely, it raises some serious questions. Some people may use it to call into question the fact that, are we sure Jesus was the Messiah? Isn't he disqualified because of this? And it does raise some serious questions. Most preachers try to act like the answer is relatively simple. The answer is, well, you know, the, the, the genealogy that, that gives Jesus access to the throne comes from Mary. It, it, that's who it comes, th- that's who it comes through, through. It comes through Mary, not through Joseph. And so that, that's t- typically the way it, it, it said as if it's so simple and easy that way. But I don't, I don't think it's always that easy, but we'll, we'll talk about it. So are you ready? Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah twenty two twenty four. I don't have the ability to put this all together tonight, but I, I'm going to let you hear what Doctor J Vernon McGee has to say. I think his answer is an oversimplification of the complications found within it, because we we spent maybe five six hours trying to put this all together, and it is complicated, convoluted, and difficult. But let's let's at least look at this. You ready? Jeremiah twenty two twenty four. As I live. Saith the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. So we have kind of a prophecy against Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. All right, now Coniah. Coniah, that that may not ring a bell immediately until you start thinking. Wait a minute, some of these kings have multiple names. So we 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 studied this on Sunday, um, but I I wasn't draw. I, I was my mind was on so many different things. I wasn't quite paying attention. So let me help you out here with Coniah. Right? Okay. Now here, this is important. Coniah is also known as Jeconiah. Okay, and he's known as okay, okay. Here we go. He was followed by his his son Jehoiachin, also called Jeconiah and Kaniah. All right, so so before him you have Jehoiakim. Okay, he's also called Eliakim. He reigned for eleven years and died in Jerusalem. So we're just going to back it up to the, to Jehoiakim. All right, so we have Jehoiakim. He was called Eliakim. For And for 11 years, he reigned for 11 years. He died in Jerusalem. He was followed. So Jehoiakim was followed by his son Jehoiachin, also called Jeconiah and Coniah, whose reign lasted only three months. Nebuchadnezzar took him to Babylon where he eventually died. All right. So follow this. All right. We have Jehoiakim he's called Eliakim. He reigns for 11 years. He dies in Jerusalem. Then he is followed by his son Jehoiachin, also called Jeconiah, and Kaniah, whose reign lasted only three months. Nebuchadnezzar took him to Babylon, where eventually he died. Now, it's Jeconiah, Coniah. Jehoiachin, that's who we are looking at. And there's a prophecy here in Jeremiah 22 against him. Now let's look at it very closely. Let's look at it again. As I live, saith the Lord, though Keniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee hence, and I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life, into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. We know that's what happens. I will cast thee out and thy mother that bare thee into, into another country where you were not born and there shall ye die. But to the land, but to the land whereunto they desire to return, uh, thither shall they not return. Is this man, Kaniah a despised broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore, see, they cast out he and his seed and are cast into a land which they know not. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus say the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that, that shall not prosper in his day, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. He is cursed. And no one from his seed is going to rule and reign. He is cursed. We can call this the curse of, we could call this the curse of, uh, Jehoi Jehoiakin, the curse of Jechaniah, or the curse of Kaniah. He is cursed. The problem is, he seems to appear in the genealogy of Jesus. And you would say, well, if he's in the genealogy of Jesus, no one from this line can rule on the throne of Judah, so then Jesus cannot be the promised Messiah. And this raises serious, serious questions. Now, the way people typically get around it, no, 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 he's in Joseph's line, not Mary's line. So therefore, because Joseph wasn't the biological father, since he's not the biological father, well then, hey, it doesn't count. The curse then doesn't go to Jesus because he, he's not, he's not the biological father. The, the, the right to the king, the right to the throne comes through Mary. All right. Now that you may say that works. Many are not so convinced it's that simple or that it's that easy, but that's kind of what Dr. J. Vernon McGee tries to explain. And look, I don't blame him for not getting into all the controversy and not getting into all the difficulty. I don't blame him. He's trying to teach through the whole Bible in five years. It could take you five years trying to figure this out. Now, here's what I would tell you to do. Some of you remember this. Some of you may not remember this. Some of you may have listened to it and have completely forgotten about it. So I would challenge you. You can find this on any of the podcasting apps, But it would be easier on the Church One app, the Church One app. If you download the Church One app, that's Church O-N-E. Once you download the app, do a search for Theology Central. You'll find all of our teaching. Look for this. Look for the series, The Curse of Jeconiah. The Curse of Jeconiah. It is five sermons. That's well over five hours of teaching. I think every message is over an hour and and if you look at the numbers, not a lot of people listen to it, at least on the Church One app, right? On the Church One app, uh part one, 38 people listen to it. Part two, 51, part three, 37, part four, 41, part five, 54. Not a lot of people listen to them. And that's that's so discouraging considered how much work went into it, but that's okay. That's okay. Not a lot of people use the church one app. That's okay. Yeah, you know, we make it available for people. But I would challenge you to go back, download them again, work through them again so that you understand this prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 22, that you understand this prophecy in Jeremiah 22 and and the ramifications and the problems it caused because you don't think about it. And then you get to that genealogy in Matthew and you're like, "Eh, whatever, you know, whatever." You don't really you don't go, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. That is that person that was cursed in the Old Testament. You don't think about it. You don't see it." Now, some maybe within the Jewish world may see it. Others who may be skeptics may go, "Your Jesus can't be the King of Kings and he's going to rule on a throne in Judah. He's disqualified. He's under a curse." And you say, well, no, 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 it's it's simple. It's, look, what you'll do is you'll start doing a couple of Google searches, find a couple of articles and go, hey, it's simple. But when you start working through it yourself and you start trying to keep all the names straight, I mean, that's look what happened to me today. When 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 I was listening to Dr. J. Vernon McGee talk about that, it didn't even register in my mind, right? I didn't even register. My, I told everyone, well, you go look at the genealogy. And you see if that works, right? I just kind of threw it out as a passing assignment. I didn't even give it much thought because all the names Kaniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, Joachim, oh Zedekiah, Josiah, all the different names, all the different kings. Sometimes it can all run together. And so even for me, I didn't immediately register. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, 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 no. It can't be. That is it, is it that Jeconiah? If it's that Jeconiah, we, we go, whoa, did we, did we even cover Jeremiah 22 when we covered the whole series? Or did we miss it because it doesn't use the name Jeconiah, it uses Kaniah? Did we miss it? I don't think we missed it. I don't think we did because we, we, we were covering everything, but it raises some serious questions. Is it the same? or are, are, are there more than one? I don't have my Bible dictionaries here. That's something we should probably, because if there's, if there's another one, then we're like, there's two cursed people in, in the genealogy. That would even make it more complicated. All right? But please, 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 please. All right? Okay. And so, and this is the way I wrote the description for the series. What is the curse of Jeconiah and does it disqualify Jesus from sitting on the throne of David? Well, if Jeconiah is in the genealogy. Let me read it to you again. Jeremiah twenty two thirty. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For ne- Now, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Now, was that only like limited to a specific period of time? Or is that just like from this point forward, no one in his line will rule from, from uh, uh, will sit on the throne of David. It's very important. So I just wanted to bring that back up, please. Again, the Church One app, or if you're listening to us on the Sermons 2.0 app, just do a search for The Curse of Jeconiah. Look for the series from Theology Central. Listen to it. I'm assuming there are a lot of people on Sermons 2.0 have looked at this curse. You can listen to all the different explanations, and you can see what works for you. Let's go back and listen to what Dr. J. Vernon McGee said. He, He moves through it quickly. We'll listen to it, and then we'll see if we can finish Jeremiah chapter 23, this late night, fast approaching, early morning, and let's see if we can do that. I hope you're ready. You're ready? Here we go. We're out for a late night jog, all right? It's not, here in Texas, it's still like 110 degrees at 1130 at night. Okay, maybe that's a little bit of hyperbole, not much. It was like a 100, I don't think it was too long ago. All right, so are you ready? Here we Now, here is the harshest
1: judgment that's pronounced in the Word of God here in this 22nd chapter, beginning with verse 24 through 30. And Jeremiah has called upon Zedekiah to turn back to God in obedience. And he warns that failure to do so is going to bring immediate judgment. And now we come here. This is a harsher judgment then God pronounced upon Cain, or the Lord Jesus pronounced upon Judas. This is I say frightful, and it's one of the most remarkable prophecies in the Word of God. Listen to him. As I live, saith the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim. Now Kaniah is Jehoiachin, and he's called Jeconiah also. Why isn't that J E put on here? God took his name, which would be Jehovah, away from him. God says, you don't identify me as that man. And he says here, as I live, saith the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet I'd pluck thee things. God says, if he was a ring on my finger, I'd throw him away, and I will give thee, into the hand of them that seek thy life, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And now we read verse 28. Is this man Kaniah a despised, broken vessel? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out? He and his seed and are cast into a land which they know not. And then he cries to the earth to witness. And here's something the earth ought to hear today. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David, and ruling any more in Judah. And my friend, this is the reason that Joseph could not be the father of Jesus. One of the reasons, at least. Because he's in this line, and God says there's not going to be anyone in this line to sit on the throne at all. And he makes that, I think, very clear. Over in Jeremiah, the 33rd chapter, verse 17, he says, "...For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Jacob." Well, then... Caniah can't be in the line, you see. And yet there is going to be one in the line. And in 36.30 here of Jeremiah, God says, Therefore thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day and the heat and in the night to the frost. I tell you, God cut off that line. And the remarkable thing is, the reason we have two genealogies of Jesus, the one in Matthew leads to Joseph. Joseph gave him the legal title to the throne, but no one can come from that line. So you have Mary's genealogy in Luke, and that comes through Nathan. There's no curse on that line or judgment at all. And the Lord Jesus came through that line and he got the blood title to the throne of David. My friend, that's one of the most remarkable things in the world, I think, today. And God calls to the earth, listen to me. He says, this is the way that I worked it out. And don't think that I can't bring judgment even when it looks otherwise. This is remarkable, friends.
0: I mean, I know he has to give a simple explanation, but if the legal right to the throne comes from Joseph, but it can't come through Joseph because Jeconiah is in Matthew. I just looked during that. It's in Matthew. You'll have no problem finding it. Jeconiah is there. Then what you have to clearly demonstrate is that Matthew is clearly the genealogy leading to Joseph and Luke is clearly the one leading to Mary and that they're radically different and that Okay, so here's one through Joseph, his, not his biological father, right? Because Joseph wasn't, and if I said that earlier that he was, obviously, you know, I, I, I was, I stated it incorrectly. So, since Joseph wasn't his biological father, then Jeconiah being in there doesn't, the curse doesn't make it to Jesus. But then, through Mary, then, well, then he has the blood right to the throne. Because he was virgin born. So ultimately, through God, his father, he has the right to the throne. So, does that work? Well, you gotta, you gotta clearly demonstrate that. And we talked about some of the complexities there. So, listen to the series, The Curse of Jeconiah. Please, please. You may not think it's important, but here we are in the book of Jeremiah and Jeconiah shows up. Coniah. However you want to say his name all the different ways of saying it, which leads to the confusion. It's what gets so confusing with the whole thing is you're like, wait a minute. I got to keep, okay. This person has how many different names? Okay. Where does he show up? Okay. What does this mean? Wait, why is he in Matthew? Wait a minute. This man was cursed. You got to keep all of that straight, which once again demonstrates, and I will say it over and over and over. I know Christians love to claim that the Bible is simple and anyone can understand it, but I'm going to continue to argue it is complicated, it is difficult, at times it feels convoluted, it can be confusing, and the and you know why I know that? Because after 2,000 years of study, Nobody still agrees on anything. People constantly fight. No one can even agree on interpretation of verses that appear somewhat simple. We can't even agree on how to baptize. We can't even agree on the doctrine of salvation. So when you get something as complicated and definitely feels convoluted as Jehoi Chen, Jeconiah, Coniah, how is he in the lineage? How is he in the genealogy of Jesus since he's cursed? And no one from his genealogy is supposed to ever sit on the throne of Judah. I mean, it's something you have to think about. Now, let's go to chapter 23, all right? Here we go.
1: Now, in chapter 23, we do have a ray of hope. What is the popular song, Every Cloud Has a Silver Lining? Well, this cloud, Dark Cloud as a silver lining, because it never got so dark, but what the prophet didn't see down into the future. Now, in chapter 23, after this harshest judgment that's in the Bible against Coniah, then the sun breaks through. Now, he opens chapter 23, though, with this, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. And the pastors here are not preachers. He'll speak about the religious rulers later on. But here, the pastors are the kings, the politicians, the people that are ruling, the ones that are making the laws, those that are at the top. And God says, "'Woe to them!' Now he says, "'Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel, "'Against the pastors that feed my people, "'Ye have scattered my flock, you've driven them away,' And have not visited them? Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith the
0: Lord. Now, you can just test this. Is this the kings or is this religious leaders? He says it's the kings. Only thing that would just make me pause is, therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Is he obviously referring to physically feed the people? Not you, I'm not, I'm not telling you one is right, one is wrong. I'm just, I'm just telling you to just, don't just believe what you hear. Do a little bit of work and do all the translations translate them as pastors? Do some translate it as king? Do some translate it as prophets? Is there any difference in translations? And then do your own work, maybe within a paragraph to, to prove The pastors here are kings, or the pastors here are prophets, or the pastors here are civil authority, or the pastors here are religious authority, and see if you can summarize within like a a short paragraph of why you think they are what they are. And I'd love to get your, your feedback. All right, let's continue.
1: And God says he's going to judge them. And he did in that day. Now the sun breaks through. It never got so dark, but what the prophet didn't look down to the end of the tunnel, and he saw the light. Verse 3 of chapter 23 of Jeremiah, "...and I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries, whither I have driven them, and I will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase." And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. God says, the day is coming that I intend to take over. And when I do,
0: then you'll see the poor taken care of. Now, when you have these promises, you always have to ask yourself, were these promises fulfilled when they came out of Babylonian captivity? And if they were not fulfilled when they came out of Babylonian captivity, that means they've never been fulfilled. So then either you have to start saying they're not going to be fulfilled. Literally, they have to be fulfilled spiritually. Then you try to claim that they're being fulfilled in the church. So Israel, national Israel gets the actual curse and suffering, which was literal, but then the blessing, we then spiritualize it. And we say, it's not for Israel. It's for the church. I think if the, if the, If the suffering and the judgment was literal, then the blessings have to be literal. And if the curses and the judgment was for the nation of Israel, then the blessings have to be for the nation of Israel in some way, shape, or form. But That's the never-ending debate within Christianity, and no one's ever going to agree on it, but that's, that's where it comes down to.
1: And you're going to see an altogether different type of government than we have in the world today. Verse 5, Now, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I'll raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Now, there's a king coming in David's line. But this king, Jeconiah, and all of this line, although they be in David's line, they are rejected and cut off. But like you can't destroy God's purpose.
0: See how confusing that is? Hey, hey, there's going to come a king from David's line. But Jeconiah isn't David's line. <laughs> well, then that whole line would be cursed. Right? You see how confusing it can get. Is Jeconiah in David's line? If he's in David's line, then isn't the whole line ruined? Therefore, then how can Jesus come from David's line and not find the curse of Jeconiah? How does that happen? The, those are the kinds of questions you have to be willing to ask when you look into this stuff, and and it shows you. And but most churches don't spend a lot of time on these kinds of issues because they're convoluted and trying to deal with it from the pulpit can be a mess trying to explain it all. So what you really have to do is you can maybe mention it briefly and then you just throw out a simple answer and everybody's like, okay, it's no big deal then. And then they're having some conversation with someone and someone's like, what do you mean it's no big deal? Your pastor's straight up lying to you. This is a convoluted mess. Okay, but... There you have it. All right, let's continue.
1: You may think you can but God will bring through another line, the line of Nathan, another son of David. And through that line there will come a peasant by the name of Mary, a peasant girl up in Nazareth. And she's going to bear the Messiah. She's going to bear the king, if you please. And when he presented himself to the world, He says, "...behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And you can't have a kingdom without the king. What he said, the king is here. And they rejected the king. But my friend, he has the last word. He rejected them. And he said, the king's coming back someday. And he's going to set up that kingdom. Verse 6, "...in his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely." And this is his name whereby he
0: shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. Please note, this is so important. And in his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel. There's no way to make that the church. It's just ridiculous, especially in the context of Jeremiah. Oh, no, no, that's the church. Wait a minute, so all these people who are hearing these horrible messages, these promises aren't for them, it's for the church? No, it's for the nation of Israel that there's going to come a day that they're going to dwell safely, and you know why they're going to dwell safely? You know why they're going to be saved? Because the Lord is their righteousness, not because of their righteousness, not because of their deeds, but because he is their righteousness, and guess what? Jesus is our righteousness as well to anyone who believes His righteousness is imputed to us by faith alone. It has nothing to do with our righteousness, but his righteousness. The proof of your salvation is not your righteousness. It is his righteousness imputed to your account by faith alone.
1: May I say to you, have you ever heard of that being a plank in some political campaign that the man's righteous and he's going to act righteous? I haven't found that yet. They make every other claim, except they're going to be righteous. And they're going to follow God's plan and God's program for a government. They don't dare say that today. Verse 7, "...therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord. They shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, which brought up, which led the seed of the house of Israel... Out of the north country and from all countries, whither I'd driven them, and they shall dwell in their
0: own land. Please note it's the land promise comes back, and it's either even for Israel out of the north country. We usually talk about Israel not coming back out of Assyrian captivity, right? We usually Israel and Judah, they're all going to be brought back and they're going to be in their land. This is not the church. This is not the church. Unless Israel isn't Israel, Judah isn't Judah, and land isn't land. And if you start that hermeneutic, you destroy the meaning of the entire book of Jeremiah and the rest of the Old Testament.
1: Now, this is one of the most remarkable prophecies in the word of God. The oldest religious holiday that there is today is Passover, the Jewish Passover. And regardless of what type of uh, Israelite the man might be, could be reformed orthodox, wouldn't make any difference. They remember the Passover, the deliverance out of Egypt that goes back. God says the day is coming when I bring them back into that land which I shall do, that they'll forget the deliverance out of Egypt, and they will remember this new thing that I intend to do. It'll so far surpass the deliverance out of the land of Egypt. This is tremendous, my friend. And you either believe this or you don't believe it. God's not through with the nation Israel. Now, verse 17, "...they say still unto them that despise me," The Lord hath said, Ye shall have peace. And they say, Every one that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. And these dreamers today are talking about they're going to bring in world peace. And all of them are talking along that line. God says you won't do it. You can't do it. God says, as we saw in Isaiah, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Our problem is not The fact that you can't make peace and that people don't want peace. The trouble is that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? We don't know how bad we really are. And wicked men in power today cannot bring peace on this earth. And if they can, they'll contradict God's Word. Verse 21, he turns now to the religious rulers. He said, you can't trust today. The political rulers, they can't bring in this peace. They ignore the poor. And in verse 21, "...I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied." And God says, now this bunch of prophets, and the land was filled with them in that day. God says, I didn't send them. They're not giving my message at all. God rejected both the political rulers and the religious rulers. And I think that he'd do the same thing today in this world, all over the world. Because who's seeking for God today, even among the religious rulers of the world? They're out for religion. Oh, they're religion up to their eyebrows. And as pious as a poison puppy. But they just don't happen to be seeking after the living and true God. Now, God says here in verse 30, "...therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor." And today, the liberal is casting reflection on the Word of God, says it's not the Word of God, stealing out of the hearts of people. I'd hate to be a godless college professor or a godless preacher today who is wrecking the faith of believers, God says, here, I'm going to do something about it someday. And God's in no hurry. Don't let that deceive you because judgment against an evil work is not executed speedily. It's in the heart of the sons of men to do evil. They think they're getting by with it. God says, I got eternity ahead of me. And I happen to be running the show anyway. And the time will come when I'll handle it. Now, we have here in chapter 24, the sign of the figs here, good figs, bad figs. God makes the distinction between good and evil, and he does it here. And he says that it just happens to be, I intend to send these people into captivity because these are bad figs. That is God's judgment and his estimation. Now you come in chapter 25 to a
0: remarkable chapter Oh, wow. He went, he went, he, he just basically skipped 24. He basically skipped 24. And now he says we're in chapter 25. I say, let's continue. We're, we're going to continue a little bit longer. We're going to we're, we're this far in. Let's just keep going. So obviously we know we're going to have to go back and do some work. He skipped a lot in 23. He didn't even deal with 24. So that tells me we're going to have to do a 24. Let's see what he does with 25. All right, here we go. ...because now Jeremiah, he spells out
1: the captivity and even gives the length of time that they'll go into captivity. In chapter 25, verse 9, "...behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant." Remember now, Daniel had led this man "...into a saving knowledge of God, and will bring him against this land, and against the inhabitants thereof, and against all these nations round about, and will utterly destroy them, and make them an astonishment, and a hissing, and a perpetual desolation." Now, a great many people wonder why the land of Israel is not the land flowing with milk and honey today. A great water shortage is over there today. They desperately need water. Now, why is that true? God says, I intend to make it a perpetual desolation. I intend to let the world know I've judged not only a people, but a land. And the judgment of God is upon that land specifically as the curse of sin is in the entire earth. This earth is not producing near what it's capable of producing because the curse of sin is upon it. Now, God says, Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the candle. God is taking away from them, he says, all the fun they've been having. And no more marrying and giving in marriage. The sound of the millstone. Business, commerce was going to end. And the light of the candle That's at home in the evening. There'll be no more of that. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. When God's dealing with the nation Israel, he deals with a calendar. He'll spell out the time. When he's dealing with the church, there's no time given. And you and I have no right today to say that even the Lord Jesus is coming soon. How do you know that? You don't know it. We have not been given a account. Now, somebody says, but McGee, you say you believe he's coming soon. That's right, and I say it right now. I believe he's coming soon. You want to know something? I don't know. We just don't know, and we have no right to say he's coming soon. We can just say we believe it. That's as far as we can go. Verse 12, "...it shall come to pass when seventy years are accomplished," that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation saith the Lord for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans and will make it perpetual desolations. Now, God has done that. There's no argument here. If you want to argue this, you're arguing semantics and you're not arguing prophecy. God has accomplished this. Now, at this time, Nebuchadnezzar had already taken away a delegation And those that remained under Zedekiah, they were paying tribute. In fact, under Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. And these kings actually were all alike. After Josiah, beginning with Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, they are as much alike as peas in a pod. They were all evil after Josiah. And now he has pronounced that Nebuchadnezzar will come and finally destroy Jerusalem and take the people into captivity. In fact, all of them into captivity. And the 70 years has now been given definitely by Jeremiah. Now, that does not conclude it. Beginning at verse 15... He says, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury in my hand, and I will cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. And they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then took I the cup at the Lord's hand, and made all the nations to drink unto whom the Lord had sent me. Now, beginning here at verse 18, he lists these nations. The first, of course, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, the kings and the princes. And then Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is picked out. Then the kings of Uz, the Philistines, Ashkelon, Asaph, "...and Ekron, and Ashdod, and Edom, and Moab, and Ammon, and the kings of Tyre, and Sidon, and the islands which are beyond the sea." In other words, this is the thing that he's saying to them, that they are to take the wine cup of the wrath of God. Now, this is a figure of speech that several of the prophets use. And they spoke of the sin of man." As he continues in rebellion against God, especially as it relates not only to his own people, but the nations of the world, that it's like a wine cup that's filling up with wrath. And when it gets full, then the judgment of God breaks upon the earth.
0: Now, as a special assignment... I want you to find all the verses in the Bible that speaks of this cup of wrath, this cup of wrath, that the cup is described maybe as a wine cup of wrath. Find all the places where it's used all the places in the Old Testament, see if it shows up in the book of Revelation. Once you gather all of those verses that seem to speak of a wine cup being filled with wrath, it's the cup of wrath and someone has to drink it and someone has to drink it. and someone. Once you find, make a list of all of the references of the wine cup of wrath. And then on the other side of the page, I want you to find the one reference where Jesus speaks of, Lord, if you can remove this cup from me, Nevertheless, not my will, thy will be done. And then Jesus drinks of the cup of God's wrath. If the cup represents the wrath of God, Jesus ultimately submitted to drinking all of God's wrath on himself for your behalf. Therefore, there's no more wrath left for you because Jesus drank all of the wrath of the father. He satisfied it. So look up all the verses you can find about the cup being full of a picture of God's wrath, a picture of God's wrath, a picture of God's wrath, the wine cup of God's wrath. Find all the passages you can in the Bible and then find those references in Matthew. Uh, Is it in Mark? Is it in Luke? Is it in John? Look in the four gospels. And where you find Jesus saying, Lord, if there's any way, remove this cup. Why is he trying to? And he's in great distress about getting the cup removed. But then he accepts the cup. And on the cross, Jesus was, in a sense, drinking all of God's wrath, every last drop for those who believe in him. That's why there is no more wrath left for you, because Christ has satisfied. He was our propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. There's nothing more left for you to drink, right? So please do the work on that. Please do the work on that and then email it to me. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. That's a very, that's just a, that that's assignment is not for you to learn. That's an assignment for you to find great comfort and peace in. Because there's plenty of times I do things and I know I deserve the wrath of God. But it's good when I lay down at night to know that it's all of God's wrath, Jesus has taken and has drunk every last drop of it. There's no more wrath left for me. Use that to comfort yourself and to help you rest in the comforting peace that comes through the salvation found in Christ.
1: And then he makes them drink that wine cup, which of course is the judgment of God. Now all of the Nations in that particular area, and even beyond it, were to be judged of God because of the fact they were so far from God. And it reveals that God does overrule in the nations of the world. Now, we find, beginning down here, verse 30 of this chapter, he says, "...therefore prophesy thou against them all these words, and say unto them, "...the Lord shall roar from on high and utter His voice from His holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon His habitation. He shall give a shout as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth." Now, this is to be a judgment not confined to Israel. In other words, Babylon is to become the first great world power that will dominate all the nations of the then civilized world. And then he pronounces, of course, especially upon the nation Israel, but it reaches beyond that in verse 32, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, evil shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth. Now, it was this tremendous movement of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, as he moved out over the then-civilized world and even brought Egypt and brought Tyre inside, and these great powers, including Judah, under his sovereignty. Now, he had already moved down, and some of the people had been taken, and Zedekiah was paying tribute. But now these nations want to come together, And they want to oppose the king of Babylon. And they believe that that's the way that it shall be done. That if they can do that, why, everything's going to work out all right. And we find that Jeremiah, for his people now, having given this message, and it was rejected, and judgment came just as God said it would. In chapter 26, we have here... This that we had had before, if you'll recall, I think it was way back in the seventh chapter, where he was told there to stand in the gate. Now, here there's been a change in chapter 26. In verse 2 of chapter 26, he says, "...stand in the court of the Lord's house." And this is a message that he'd already given in the time of Jehoiakim, It's repeated now at the time of Zedekiah. And these messages here all relate to the reign of Zedekiah. In fact, through the 30th chapter, actually this is one message. It's the final word of God to these people before the captivity. Now, he's to stand there as these people. See, they're coming to the temple. I'm of the opinion that many of us that had been there and had seen this outward show of worship and the prosperity that was in the land at this time. Nobody seemed to be complaining that it looked as if God was rather petulant and being petty with the people. But they were far from God and there was awful sin in the land. And now he is to cry out against this. And he says to the people, verse 3 of chapter 26, "...if so be, they will hearken and turn every man from his evil way, that I may repent me of the evil." And when God repents, it doesn't mean he's changed his mind. He means the people have changed, and then God won't judge, but he'll bless. And it looks as if God had changed his mind. But God will always punish sin. He always will pardon the sinner that will come to him. That never changes." But when a sinner who's under the judgment of God turns to God and is blessed and saved, then it looks as if God changed his mind. But actually, the sinner had done that. God says, if you will, then God says, I wouldn't destroy you. I wouldn't judge you. Then verse 4 here, "...thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, if ye will not hearken unto me to walk in my law, which I have set before you," "...to hearken to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent unto you, both rising up early and sending them. But ye have not hearkened. Then I will make this house like Shiloh." Which means it was destroyed. "...and I'll make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth." And Jerusalem has been a burden in this world. It is right now, by the way. It's a pawn today. You talk about Israel has Jerusalem. May I say to you that America and Russia today, back and forth, it's like a pawn on the chessboard. God says, I'll make it a burden to all nations. And he certainly has done that. And Jerusalem should have been a blessing to the world, but it would become the opposite. Now, when he gave this prophecy... Verse 8, "...now it came to pass when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak unto all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people took him, saying, Thou shalt surely die." Now things are getting bad, you see, and they have not only resisted the message of God through Jeremiah, they're now going to kill Jeremiah off. They want to get rid of him. And you see something that is taking place here. There are three groups, and I'm not going to read all of this through this section here because it's not only a little technical, but it's a little tiring back and forth. But you have the princes and the priests and the people. Now, they all resist Jeremiah at the first. But finally, the princes decide they ought to hear him. And Jeremiah had a message for them. Well, let me read verse 11. Here now, chapter 26. "...Then spake the priests and the prophets unto the princes, and to all the people, saying, This man is worthy to die, for he hath prophesied against this city, as ye have heard with your ears." Now, the priests and the prophets were of one mind, that Jeremiah must die. They never changed their mind at all. They had determined his death. They never changed. Now, the princes were with him at first, but the princes decided, we better hear Jeremiah. Then the people who had been with the priests came over with the princes. That's a little complicated, as you can see. Then, will you notice verse 12, "...then spoke Jeremiah unto all the princes, to all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words that ye have heard. Therefore now, amend your ways and your doings, and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will repent him of the evil that he has pronounced against you. Now, he spells it out what they've done, verse 15, "...but know you for certain that if you put me to death, you shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves, upon this city, upon the inhabitants of a truth." Now, verse 16, "...then said the princes and all the people under the priests and the prophets, this man is not worthy to die, for he hath spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God." So you see now that the princes, the rulers... And there's something here that I think that we need to note. At this particular time, when this man Jeremiah made the statement that that temple was to be destroyed, he committed a blasphemy. In fact, the matter is, he's guilty of heresy. He's a heretic when he said that. The false prophets were saying, God won't let this temple fall. It's his temple. And God won't let Jerusalem fall. It's his city. God won't let it happen. Jeremiah says, you're entirely wrong. You are disassociating religion from morality. And that's what a great many of us fundamentalists do today. We think because we're fundamental, we believe the Word of God, and actually we make the Word of God almost a fetish today. My friend, may I say this to you? You may be fundamental to the core. And I don't yield to any man being any more fundamental. In fact, one of the evangelicals in this area, he says that McGee leans backward. He's so fundamental. I don't mind that. I think that's true. But I do want to say this, that when you begin to divorce morality from your religion, from your fundamentalism, my friend... May I say to you, you're entirely wrong, and you have made your religion and the Word of God a fetish, sort of a good luck charm to carry around with you, and you think that that's all you need do. A great many people, and I heard during World War II, you remember they gave out a New Testament to a soldier boy, and he put it up in his shirt pocket, went into battle, and a bullet hit it, and it saved his life, and... Oh, my, isn't it wonderful he had a New Testament? Well, why didn't somebody give him a Sears and Roebuck catalog? And then he could have stopped maybe a bigger bullet than that. May I say, how foolish can you be today, friends, relative to these matters? The Word of God is no fetish, and you can't divorce your life from it. And that's what the false prophet said, God won't let it happen. And there are a great many people saying, because I'm fundamental and I believe the Bible, these things can't happen to me. They can happen to you, my friend. When you and I get away from God, God's going to judge us. And we'll do well to believe his word, by the way. How important they are. And the interesting thing, these prophets did not change their mind, these false prophets. And the priests did not change their mind. But the princess did, and that's the thing that saved the life of this man. Now, again, let me make this statement here. There are people today that say, well, I live a consistent Christian life. I believe the Bible and I rest upon it. Well, fine, that's good. I want to stand with you on that. I try to do that. May I say to you that you must remember that it was these priests who wanted to put this man Jeremiah to death, the princess, were willing to hear them. And it's been my experience that when a spiritual authority becomes corrupt and debased, it's far more evil than when politics become corrupt and debased. When the civil authority is corrupt, that's bad. When the religious authority becomes corrupt, That's lots worse. And sometimes our consistency may be just another word for our bigotry, my friend. And that'll mean our judgment. We need to recognize that. And the very interesting thing is, who was it put Jesus to death on the cross? Actually, it was not the people that did it. It was the priests that did it. It was the religious rulers of that day that did it. And it was true in Jeremiah's day. And by the way, this reveals something else about the people here, that it's a fallacy, this idea today that vox populi, vox dei that the voice of the people is the voice of God. And a lot of people believe that today in this country. My friend, you mean that the moving mob the fickle crowd today that will go after one TV personality, if a man has got a personality he can be elected to any office, and he may be the biggest fool there is in the world and corrupt in his life. That is the worst thing in the world. And I thank God that he's not going to let the world vote Jesus in. If he did, he'd never get in. He's going to send him to this earth someday to put down rebellion and... Here he says to his people, Amen your ways and your doings. The people are wrong, and the princes are wrong, and the priests are wrong, and the prophets are wrong. And this man Jeremiah, and I do want to say this for him here, all he is sure of is that he's giving the Word of God. He's not sure of himself at all. And my feeling is that having turned from the Word of God, there are several things happening today. Have you noticed how popular the Zodiac has become to some people today in the horoscope? They are more concerned about what it says than what the Word of God says. And then there are a great many, and this is the thing that really disturbs me. And I move, of course, in a certain circle of ministers and leaders today, and They all seem to think they're the final authority, and they know. And I appreciate the book of Jeremiah. It helps me, because I can make a confession to you right now, and I hope you won't let it get out, but I have to say it. The more I study the Word of God, the more I am impressed by my ignorance of the Word of God. Why, I want to say to you that I've come to the conclusion that I know very little, and I'm sure many of you had already come to that conclusion. Some of the letters I get indicate that. May I say to you, I'm impressed by the fact of my ignorance of the Word of God. Now, the thing that disturbs me, I meet so many people that think they know it. They think they're the final authority. You know, it was said of Socrates. He made this statement. He said, I'm the wisest man in Athens. And they said, why in the world you say you're the wisest man in Athens? Well, he says, I know that I do not know anything. The rest of the people, they don't know they don't know anything. They think they know something. May I say to you, the only claim I could make today is that I know now I'm ignorant of the Word of God. And I do wish that some of these folk, they give me an inferiority complex, I wish they had find out that they are ignorant of the word of God. Someone has put it like this He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool, shun him. He who knows not and knows that he knows not is humble, teach him. He who knows and knows not that he knows is asleep, wake him. He who knows and knows what he knows is wise, follow him. I will accept the first three stanzas. I wouldn't accept the last one at all, because I don't think we know. And that is the position now of Jeremiah, that all he knows is the Word of God. These people, the false prophets are saying that nothing's going to happen, and he says something is going to happen. Now, when you come to chapter 27,
0: We'll have to stop right there. I let that play out, just letting you hear it. There's two major things that jump out. He talked about how you can't divorce morality from your faith, from, from, from your quote unquote religion. And I will say that in our day, if, if he was concerned that they had divorced their morality from it, I will argue that in 2023, what many Christians done, they have replaced their religion they've replaced christ with morality it's they've taken christianity and the gospel and turned it into moralism not a message of we are sinners and we need an imputed righteousness but that Christ just comes to give us more—the law just comes to give us a a moral system, and we're going to fight for the moral system, and we're going to fight culture wars to impose this moral system upon lost, unregenerate people. Within Christianity, what we have done, in a sense, we have divorced morality, maybe from quote-unquote Christianity, but we've replaced Christianity and basically have turned Christianity into nothing more than a moral system. And that so I think that's a very, and I'm always preaching against that. Christianity is not a moral system. It's a moral system that proves that we need Christ and it drives us to Christ. It's a system of saying we cannot keep the moral system. We need the one who did and Christ kept it for us. It's not just, oh, we, uh, we, we've we we so reduced it to just a, a list of rules of do's and don'ts that we supposedly can keep it without really... Anything, and then we try to impose it on everyone else. We've lost the plot so bad there. And then I love, 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 love that whole discussion there. But the problem is so much within Christianity is everyone thinks they know everyone thinks they have it figured out and not only do not only do they think they know and they have it figured out they think then everyone else doesn't know and they condemn everyone else for not knowing but the reality is the more you learn the more you realize you don't know the more you study the more you read what should happen is it should break you humble you where you're like I don't know I don't understand it's beyond my grasp to figure it out it's too complicated it's too above me and and, and pastors are always the ones trying to play that down. No, 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 we can know it. It's not that complicated. It's not that difficult. Anyone can understand it. And then you tell people in the pew that and they're like, well, I read it. I understand it. And well, you're wrong, pastor. And that pastor is wrong. And that pastor is wrong. And dun, 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 I am right. I know everything. What we should all do is be broken and realize, I know that I don't know. (laughs) I know that I don't know. The only thing I know is that I don't know, but I know this, this is the word of God and I don't completely understand it and I'm still trying to figure it out. And I do know this, 2000 years of church history, we don't even know what we know because nobody agrees on what we know. (laughs) So that should break us and humble us. And he made it to Jeremiah chapter 27. There we go. We have to stop there because that's been 67 minutes. There's a lot of other things in there. He skipped some serious stuff. He skipped some major stuff. So we will have to go back and try to fill in those gaps, but this will give you a little bit of of oversight. We will go back and work on it. We'll go back to uh, tomorrow, hopefully at Victory Baptist Church. It's going to be all about chapter 23. That's what we're going to work on. And then maybe Sunday, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We got a lot of work to do, but we're going to keep moving forward, realizing that before we know it, August will be over. But I tell you, we're going to go down. We're going to go down swinging. I'm going to go down. If the ship sinks, I'm going down with it. Okay. And my last words right before I go underwater will be something. Jeremiah, Jeremiah something. Okay. I'm, I'm staying on the boat until it goes under, but we're going to find a way to, uh, to finish this to some level. So the rest of August, please, Jeremiah, read it, listen to it, do whatever you can. And, uh, well, there you go. There's so much more I want to say, so much I want to review, so much more I want to talk about, but I was trying to just let him get as far into it as possible because I knew if I started talking, we were never, that that was going to be the end. If I would have just started talking any, so I wanted to play it. And the only reason I could play this out a little bit more is because we are very grateful that through the Bible ministries have given us the right to play this content, and we don't even have to offer critique or criticism. In other words, we don't have to meet the fair use standard. They've given us the right to use it. So we're grateful for Through the Bible, and we are grateful for the ministry of Dr. J. Vernon McGee letting us do that and not even charging us for it. So we are grateful. All right, thank you so much for listening. And uh, well, you keep thinking and meditating on these chapters in Jeremiah. And uh, well, see what you can come up with. And don't forget your assignment on the cup. All right, all right. Email me again, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Everyone have a good night. Good morning. Hey, it's Wednesday. So good morning. <laughs> Welcome to Wednesday. And we will uh, we will do some more study and teaching and broadcasting on this Wednesday. Just give me a couple of hours of sleep. All right. Thanks for listening. God bless.